Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damian Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to the Wellness Guys. I'm Dr. Lawrence Tam. I'm Dr. Damian Kristoff. And I'm Dr. Brett Hill. And this is the Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicated to bringing wellness into our lives. And today we have a very special guest, a uh, acclaimed author and uh, of the book Born to Run. It's a national bestseller. Uh, Christopher, Chris McDougall, sorry. <laughs> uh, welcome aboard, Chris. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this interview because uh, Brett's been raving about your book, <laughs> Born to Run. He's <laughs> been telling book. everybody to read this book. And uh, so, Chris, could you just tell us a little bit about how you came to this book and how you, you know, what, what's the book about and um, tell us your insights from it? You know, I was trying, like so many other people, to just do a little bit of running. You know, nothing special. I wasn't trying to, like, run marathons or anything. I was just trying to burn off whatever I'd drunk or eaten the night before. And I was constantly getting hurt. You know, I'd run whatever, you know, three or four kilometers every couple of days, and something would spring loose. I got some pain in my Achilles or my heel or my hips. And I would go to see doctors, and they would tell me that running is bad for the body and all that impact is bad. At the time, I was like 240 pounds, so they said it's even worse if, if your body's like the size of Shrek's. So um, I gave up on running. But then I, I learned about this tribe down in Mexico, the, the Battle Monte Indians. And this is a culture where people are running, you know, not just marathons, but 100 or 150 miles at a time, and they're still doing it at 60, 70 years old. One Battle Monte runner, 55 years old, he wins a 100-mile race through the Rocky Mountains, beating all kinds of elite athletes, and he's wearing a pair of homemade sandals. So my question was, how is it that these guys can do it without getting hurt, and the rest of us are struggling with it all the time? And that's basically what led to this whole bizarre adventure down in the canyons and this 50-mile uh, race at the end of the book. Wow. wow. Full on. What a story. Yeah. It's an awesome story, and and for those out there, I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit later. But it's an awesome read, Chris. And and what you did just fantastically well in the book was combine lots of information um, with just an actual great story that just sort of a real page turner. So I do want to say congratulations on the book because it is one of my favourites. And and one of the concepts that I found really interesting in the book was just this idea that that running and running quite long distances um, was actually something that was you know not not as abnormal as we tend to think. It's something quite natural that the body is actually capable of doing um, if you look after it and, and run in the right way. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Chris? Sure. You know, that was one of the things that was a real eye-opener for me. When I began this process, I had actually I'd been a writer already for Runner's World magazine. I'd written for Men's Health. And, you know, all that time, it never dawned on me or I'd never come across the fact that, you know, running is an art form. It is a physical art like anything else, like swimming, riding a bike, ballet. There's a better and a worse way to do it. I've never been told that. I've always been told, you know, get the right shoes, get the right training program, and that's it. But then you start to scratch below the surface, and you realize there have been great thinkers out there that have been saying the same thing over and over again. You know, Percy Surdy was saying the same thing back in the 50s. Arthur Lydier, same thing back in the 40s. Uh, Emil Zatopek. Every one of these guys realize that this is a physical art, and if you do it right, you will get the benefits, and if you do it wrong, you'll get the pain. So that's what I started to dig into, and what was a real eye-opener was I discovered that there were scientists at, at Harvard University and at the University of Utah 
who were working on anthropological theory that the only natural talent that humans had for most of our existence wasn't our brains because they were still underdeveloped. It wasn't our brawn because we are like the biggest sissies in the jungle compared to other animals. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't our speed because we're not fast. You know, Usain Bolt, fastest guy on the planet, couldn't catch a squirrel if his life depended on it. The only <laughs> thing... It's true, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're slow compared to other creatures. The only yeah. thing the humans do really well is run long distances on a hot day. And that became mm. my, my interest is if this was our one anthropological strength, why is it that's causing us so much trouble now? Mm. That's great. I think it's interesting, is it? Oh, sorry, I remember you t talking about a story about uh, you know humans having invented uh, the weapons back then, um, and you know we had we couldn't kill these animals with bare hands unless we sort of had to kind of run them down and you know really make them exhausted. Yeah, it was kind of a, it was kind of a crazy thing because it's one of the big mysteries of human history. You know what what we know for a fact is that the human brain exploded in size roughly two million years ago. Um, we went from Australopithecus that had like a little sort of peanut brain to Homo erectus, it has this gigantic melon head with this big brain inside. Well, well, brains are fantastic energy suckers. You know, they, they demand a lot of caloric energy to operate. And so the problem is, you have a brain two million years ago that needs condensed caloric energy, yet the only edged and projectile weapons only appeared about 200,000 years ago. So for like 1,800,000 years, somehow we're killing stuff and eating it, yet we're doing it without weapons. And that, that was the mystery. And the solution seems to be this idea that we spent most of our existence as hunting pack animals, that we went out there, a pack of us, like a bunch of mangy dogs, we would pick out an antelope on the horizon, and then we'd just start to jog after it. And that's when our real key advantage kicked into place. The fact is that we vent heat primarily by perspiration instead of respiration. If you have an antelope, it's got a choice. It's either going to get oxygen or it's going to cool off, but it's not doing both. We can do both. Right. That's cool. That's that's so cool. Um, I, I love. We've, we've been talking a lot about anthropology in, in recent times. Um, you know, certainly talk about food and paleo sort of principles, and and it's really nice. And we actually spoke to um, Mark Sisson recently. You know, in in his Primal Blueprint, we spoke to him just recently, and that was a, a fantastic interview. And he speaks about you know primal movements and what you talk about is obviously very very primal, but what we've seen a bit of a trend, you know, happening recently, Chris, is a lot of people talking about barefoot running, but wearing um, shoes that are designed for barefoot running. But I, I've noticed that you don't do that. Oh, you kind of do, but yours is more like a sandal as opposed to the ones that are still made from plastic. Do, can you elaborate a bit more on that? Sure. It's it's one of the, one of the difficulties you're running through. Man, you know, people love to buy; they don't necessarily like to learn, and so. <laughs> <laughs> It's crazy, you know. You know that with like cyclists too. The guys who say have more, more money than miles. You know, they got all the kit on the bike <laughs> and everything like that. They don't really go anywhere, but they look they look awesome. And it's the same thing with uh, with running. You know, and the people who are advocating um, minimalist running, they they keep saying the same thing that nobody's listening to. Is it's not about footwear. It's about form. Learn the form, and you can wear whatever you want. But what I think people do is. You know, it takes a few weeks to learn form, but it takes one click on Amazon to get shoes. So <laughs> that, that seems to be what people are doing. But basically what it comes down to is this, is that, you know, again, for most of our existence, we had no coverings on our feet. 
when we did add covering, it was for protection. Um, it was for against the cold or against mm-hmm. abrasive surfaces. And that's basically all you need. Any kind of a moccasin, sandal, um, anything. You don't, you don't need to have uh, an expensive you know, pair of running shoes, even if they're minimalist. So right, what I strongly recommend to people is take your shoes off, go totally barefoot for a while, get your arms around the form, and then decide what kind of protection you need for the kind of running you're doing. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. So, so Chris, in your book, you had uh, some information there uh, about different sorts of shoes, and there was actually some research that had been done about sort of expensive shoes versus cheap shoes versus no shoes. Um, can you elaborate on that a bit? Because that was really interesting. Right. Well, I think what happened with the running shoe industry is again, this is, this is an industry that didn't exist uh, prior to our lifetime. You know, it was in the mid-70s, but particularly in the early 80s when the whole running shoe technology started to take off. But the difficulty is, you know, it's like you walk into a running shoe store and you're looking at that, like, bewildering wall of footwear. You know, there's like 80 different models of things and, you know, you're befuddled, like, well, how do you choose? That's basically what happened was, in order to distinguish themselves from the competition, the running shoe companies started to add more and more junk, you know? more art support, more cushioning, more medial anti-pronation stuff. And so what you have is, if you're going to try and sell a shoe that's twice as expensive as the other shoe, you've got to shove more stuff into it. Well, the more stuff you shove, it, shove into it, the more it's going to affect the natural movement of the foot. So that was really peculiar was, they uh, did a study in Switzerland where they tracked runners. And what they found is that once you account for every other variable, for age, weight, training, uh, prior injury history. You can't follow those other, other variables, and what you're still finding is that the runners with the more expensive trainers are getting injured more often than the runners with the cheaper trainers. Yeah, fascinating. Chris, you mentioned about, you know, for people, it's like, for example, like, I mean, I, I'm not a big runner, I'll fully admit to that, and um, I'm just starting, I actually did do some running today, but you talked about running, your running form is really important, improving the form, and I know we're obviously in a radio podcast type of format, and you can't demonstrate us, but can you talk us through what is the proper, you know, barefoot running style or form? Yeah, I really wrestled with this, too, because, you know, it makes no to tell people, oh, you're doing it wrong, unless you tell them how to do it right. Mm. And so you can't yank one thing away without shoving something else in its place. The difficulty is that movement doesn't really translate well to language. Um, there's an excellent running uh, coach, a guy named Danny Dreyer, who teaches a form called chi running. Mm. But Danny yeah. Dreyer has this one yeah. principle he talks about where he says you lean forward from the ankles. I know what he means. I know he's right. It's a great tip. But if you say that to 10 people, you will see 10 different interpretations <laughs> yeah. of what yeah. it means. Yeah. But what I came across is there's this excellent uh, drill from the 1870s. A guy, uh, a Brit named Walter George, back in the 1870s, he was forced to work inside like 14 hours a day. He couldn't go outside to train. So he came up with an exercise called the 100 Up. And I wrote an article about this for the New York Times Magazine. And a lot of other people have created videos and websites devoted to the 100 up. So if you just sort of Google 100 up, you should find something worthwhile. But essentially what this is, it's just a way of jogging in place. And when you jog in place, you suddenly realize you, you can't screw it up. You can't run wrong if you're not moving forward because 
You can't land on your heel if you're jogging in place. You can't overstride. You can't wobble. You have to have your posture erect. You have to land on your forefoot. Your foot will have to be underneath your hips. There's no other way to execute it. And Emil effect used to do the same thing. He had an awesome drill where he threw a bunch of wet laundry in the bathtub, and he's jogging the wet laundry. And what you realize is if you're not doing it right, you're going to the hospital. So um, those are the kind of drills I would just say is practice that first, and you'll get a sense of what you should be doing. Yeah, and I think that's what appeals to us, uh, Chris, about this barefoot running style is obviously as chiropractors, you know, we've spent all day telling people about posture and how important that is and, and we're often looking at static postures and what people are doing, whether their head goes forward, they're bending at their waist and all those sort of things. But this is really applying that great posture to movement. So it's, it's about how that to maintain that great posture whilst you're running um, and it's amazing how often you see people who have great posture standing still and as soon as they start running it just all goes pear-shaped um, so it's about being able to apply that to everyday life once you start moving as well which I think is fantastic it, it is something to realize too that it all begins and ends with posture and everything across the board everything even the way you sleep uh, it all has to do with whether those uh, those bones are in alignment the difficulty with any kind of postural thing is you don't have a, f a frame of reference. You, you, you can't see yourself. So you may think you're doing it right, and, and you may not be. That's what I like about the 100 up drill is it removes the necessity of any kind of feedback. Hmm. So would you say that for those people, like I mean, I, I recommend running for, you know, when you start giving exercise programs to people and you recommend the running, but one of the first things that most people say is like, oh, you know, I can't run because I got a bad knee or yeah. I can't run because I got a bad hip or I can't run because I have bad, you know, bad back, whatever it is. They always throw an excuse out there. So would you say that your exercise or, you know, starting with the 100 up um, exercise or training program or going through what you're, what you're describing about getting the technique right? you would, can actually overcome those, uh, those type of you know, so-called injuries? That's what was so exciting about the 100 Up. I think it's, it's foolproof. And the reason why is because nice. you're, you're in place, there's no impact, and you start slow and you gradually increase. So anywhere you would have a problem along the way, you can account for it. So let's, I mean, and the other thing too is I was that guy. I was the lowest common denominator. I was constantly going in with... Cuboid syndrome and Achilles tendonitis and plantar fascia. I was like learning how to speak Greek by all the <laughs> conversations I'm having with doctors. And now it's been years, so I haven't had a problem. So here's what I think happens with the 100 up. You basically started, the first phase is just marching in place. Anybody, no matter what their age, background, weight problem, can march in place. And what you realize is that rather than that knee locking out in front of you and absorbing impact, the knee instead is sort of folding underneath you in a very natural, relaxed motion. So that, that's what I think is so effective about this is that you gradually progress and you'll find that it removes all the fear and, and the pain risk. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. And I know certainly from my experience, Chris, it actually makes running so much easier. Um, you know, I, I went from doing a run that I, that I was doing regularly around my house. Um, and it's sort of, you know, it's quite hilly around here and I was doing about 10Ks. Um, and for me, that was quite challenging at the time. And, and as soon as I started changing this running technique, um, it just became so much easier. In fact, even the first time I did it, changing my technique, and I thought I was taking it really easy because I was trying to, you know, ease myself into this new technique. Um, and I actually took about five minutes off of my run. Um, so it's amazing how much less pressure it puts on your body, but also how much easier and faster you run doing it that way. 
Yeah, it, it is crazy. And the guy who really opened my eyes to this is a guy named Lee Saxby, who I recommend if you ever want to get him on the show. He's, he's fantastic. He's a run trainer in, um, in London. He's a former fighter. He's a former boxer. And what he pointed out to me is, you know, boxers have got zero margin for error. They, they have no energy to spare. They've got to have it all. And you watch the way a boxer moves. that are on the ball of the foot, yeah. light, bouncy, yeah. sliding, and they can go like that forever. It's a great point. It's a great point. And they don't, uh, they're, they're not wearing high tech Nike shoes or Adidas torsion, you know, things or Reebok pumps. You know, they're kind of wearing something that's pretty flat, aren't they? Yeah. And of course, the reason why is because, again, you can't be wobbling around. They need to have good spread surface contact with the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Um, in your book, you talk about uh, the super tribe, uh, which, which, you know, is incredibly fascinating. Can you tell us more about the Super Tribe? Yeah, um, the, the Tabumata Indians, and they refer to themselves as the running people. Um, you know, I think what makes them really interesting for the rest of us is that it's pretty likely that they're really doing nothing special. It's not as if they have learned something that the rest of us haven't. It's just that they haven't forgotten what the rest of us always knew. It's pretty likely that we spread across this planet um, as long-distance runners. That was our, our, our real strength. The problem, though, is that we've sort of gotten sedentary over time. We've developed our brains and sort of let our bodies go to rot. And we've forgotten the fact that ultimately, as much as we like to think of ourselves as being these like sort of technological masters of the universe, but the fact yeah. is we're just animals. We're animals like any other dog, cat, or buffalo out there. And the Tatamata haven't forgotten that. And they understand that, you know, you take an animal out of the wilderness and you stick it in a zoo, what happens, you know? It gets eating disorders, mood swings, <laughs> reproductive problems. It you know, basically turns into us. <laughs> <laughs> poor, poor animal. <laughs> poor animal, indeed. But to the Tatamata, they live at the bottom of um, a, a web of canyons in Mexico. And they are living today the same as they have for the previous, you know, 50,000 years. And, uh, and tell us about their race preparation, Chris, because that was uh, pretty interesting in the book. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, yeah, I come down there with all these preconceptions. I figure, okay, this is an ultra-running tribe, super athletes. They must be like absolute Spartans. You know? Yeah, they have Gatorade, right? I, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I find the opposite. You know, what, their, their approach to a race, this is, this, is, this is pretty good stuff. Too. Their approach to a race is two villages will get together, they will just drink their faces off all night long, party, party all night long, bet like crazy, set up these insane bets where they're betting their houses and the shirts on their backs. <laughs> and then the next morning, the, the runners from the two villages will go to the starting line, and only then, when they're hungover, exhausted, at that point, for the first time, they're told how long the race is going to be. They don't know if it's oh, going to wow. be a half marathon, a marathon, 50 miles, they don't find out until seconds before the starting gun. Wow. Now, as, 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 as hideous as that sounds, there's something really cool about it because it removes all the, the pressure and the anxiety it's out of your hands. You just show up and just go. Yeah. And you're running for your life or your wife or both. And, uh, <laughs> because you might have right. bet your wife. <laughs> That's right, right. <laughs> Plus or minus is there. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's full so, on. 
Imagine so doing Chris, that with um, the uh, Melbourne Marathon. That's just uh, the Melbourne, the Melbourne um, Ultra. What was the Ironman that just happened last weekend? It was, imagine that. That would have been classic. Yeah, yeah I mean, can you imagine if you got to the starting line and you didn't know if you are doing a sprint, Olympic, or full Ironman? Oh. Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> unreal, isn't it? Well, look, Chris, I think, uh, I think I've actually got you to blame for me deciding last year that it would be a good idea for me to run an ultra marathon. And, uh, and so I ran one through the hills last year. But, but one of the things that inspired me was all the talk in your book about the ultra marathon runners and, and the interaction you know, in that community. And, and these guys were just kind of wild and crazy and going out there and doing these just insane runs, um, which made me think that maybe if they could do it, I could do it, which, which I, I did make it to the end of the run, but only just. And, uh, but, but I'd love to you didn't get drunk. Yeah, <laughs> you weren't drunk. You should have got drunk. I'd love you to tell us some more about that kind of ultra marathon community because they seem like a bit of a crazy bunch. Well, yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm in the same boat you are because I interview these guys and I spend time with them, and you start to absorb this mindset of like, oh yeah, 50 miles. What's so, what's so hard about that? Yeah, well, you find out pretty damn quick what's so yeah. hard about 50 miles. <laughs> right about the 30k mark, I found. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing about it too, and all the, the theory goes out the window. You still got one last hill to climb. So <laughs> here's what I think is what it's all about. Um, you know, there are two people I describe in the book: um, Jen Shelton and Billy Barnett. These are a couple surfers from Virginia Beach, and their first race was a 50 miler, oh, and that was it. They hadn't even run 5Ks and half marathons. They went for 50 miler. Jen's wow. third race was a 100 miler. She comes into the halfway mark, she does a handstand, she's shadow boxing, she's eating pizza, drinking Mountain Dew, and she breaks the course record by three hours. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, and you like to think that maybe she just, she's got to be some kind of like, you know, mutation. But I think the thing about it is, the way they run is, they don't care about times, they don't care about winning, they're just out there having fun in the woods. Yeah. And the real, I think the real key to the ultra running community and what I think distinguishes it from a lot of the road running community is that it is actually, in fact, a community. You know, you go to most road 5Ks, everyone is locked inside their own groove, you know. They, mm -hmm. they hit their stopwatch on their wrist. Yeah. They're huffing and puffing. They're looking at the ground, looking at their own feet. Um, they're all zoned into what they're doing individually. The ultra running community, you can't run 100 miles without a lot of help. You need people guiding you, giving you food, giving you water. And what you form is this rejuvenating band, people helping each other out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I certainly found that it was a great community. In fact, I even got a chiropractic adjustment at the halfway mark of my ultramarathon. That's nice. I just noticed uh, looking at your blog, and look, you know, I, I, not that I was tuning out, but I thought I'd just want to check out a little bit more. But you've actually got an old cover, like an old front cover of a Sports Illustrated with an Australian champion on there, Herb Elliott. And he's training down in the dunes, um, you know, down in, in Victoria here. And I'm thinking, wow, far out. I didn't realize that Herb Elliott actually trained to bare feet. And, and is that the case? Oh, yeah. You know, that, that was the thing about it was, um, because, you know, there's, there's sort of nothing new under the sun. Everything we think is brand new in, you know, 2012, somebody was doing 50 years ago. And that was, that was Percy Sarri's thing, was he took guys like, like Herb Elliott and... He said, well, you know, I, I was whole Percy Sorry's whole story. He wasn't a runner himself. He was like this sickly, chain-smoking uh, postal worker. And his doctor said, you know something? You better sell your affairs because you're checking out. And he turned it all around. How did he do that? He went down to the racetrack, and he watched the way horses ran. And he thought, well, let me try and run the way a horse runs. 
his whole approach to running was to break it down to first principles. And the way you do that is get rid of the shoes and the gunk and see how your foot and leg wants to react. So yeah, that, that was, and Herb Elliott became, you know, because of such a sensational uh, champion, he mm. became the poster boy of that for, for a number of years. And then we just sort of forgot about it. How about that? Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing how it just gets uh, lost in time and, you know, all of a sudden resurfaces. And again, you know, obviously it's quite trendy and it's become quite popular. And I think as we probably um, evolve backwards to the times where you know shoes have less support um we, you know i think more people might actually start to do the whole barefoot thing and certainly in my practice i've got all these children with flat feet coming through and i'm like wow what are all these kids coming through with flat feet and they they've got these ridiculously padded sandals on when they're young kids they don't run around anymore they're not allowed to step on glass they can't you know walk around because they might step on you know a needle or something so they've got these protective shoes on and they actually don't learn how to use their feet and uh, and so i actually suggest to the parents that they you know take the shoes off as quickly as they can as soon as they get home and walk around on all kinds of surfaces and it, it's great but i just still don't think that children learn how to use their feet much and it, it begins then i suppose well, I was curious about that, too. I mean, I've heard people say that flat feet are actually caused by um, the arch collapsing. Is, is that true? I mean, the reason, is, is the reason why these kids have flat feet is because their arches are weakening and collapsing? Uh, well, my, my, what I've read and what I understand is that they don't have muscle tone in their feet. You know, so there's not, not as much proprioception, not as much uh, muscle reflex, and as a result, then there's not as much posture in the foot uh, because the shoe does the work. Yeah, I, I think a combination of, of overdone shoes and, and dead flat grounds. You know, there's just not that stimulation right. there. That's a good point. I forgot that the um, man-made surfaces have something to do with it, too. People talk about the hardness, but it's not really the hardness. It's the smoothness that could be the culprit. Mm. Yeah, 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 true. Just not getting that same stimulation. And it's interesting when you talk about kids, Chris, because before you were talking about those ultra-marathon runners, and now they kind of have that, you know, that endless, boundless energy. Um, and I think you see that when you look at kids running around, particularly you look at kids running around barefoot, and they'll just run around for hours at a time, right? They're just absolutely endless, boundless energy. And I think a lot of that is that they just haven't learned to run wrong. Right? They just naturally run with a pretty good technique, and it's really interesting to watch them do it. Well, there's, there's two things about that. I think you're dead on the money. One is the technique, and the second thing, though, is, you know, kids don't line up and say, let's, let's see how fast we can go for the next three hours. You know, the way kids run, I think, is much more in keeping with the way you would run if you're trying to make an antelope fall over dead. You don't want to run like the antelope. You want to, you want to run better than the antelope. And so what, what do kids do? It's all surge and recovery, you know? They'll sprint a little bit, back off a little bit, surge and recover. And that's something, again, I think is lost from the way we run recreationally now. We're all trying to get to the finish line as opposed to thinking, well, let's just back off and enjoy the ride. Mm. So that's a really more mental approach, like the way you're running. You're not you're not just running for the sake of running and trying to keep the consistent pace. You're actually monitoring yourself and also in having the process of enjoyment rather than just thinking like this is such a chore. I got to get to the next marker. Yeah, I think a lot of the, you know you talked to Mark Sisson and uh, a lot of the paleo guys. There's this sort of I think ill-advised war back and forth between sort of cardio versus, you know, aerobic versus anaerobic. And I think what, what the real answer is, that, you know, again, we, did, we weren't sprinters, we weren't marathoners, we were something in between. We were creatures that used speed and throttled back and turned it on and throttled back. And that's what I think is probably the more, uh, most effective mm -hmm. way for, for humans to run. Yeah, and Chris, have you come across any of the guys that do that, what they call free running? 
where they kind of run and they sprint and they climb trees and they do all sorts of odd things. Yeah, well, that's the thing about it, too. And one, one real smart thing I was told early on in the process of, of, of changing my own running form, a guy who was coaching me said, you know, it's only in our lifetime that we became such specialists. It, it wasn't like 10,000 years ago, guys said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm only a cyclist. I'm only a swimmer. <laughs> Dude, you were a survivalist. You did whatever it took to get food. And that's the thing about it is that, you know, you see guys who are into parkour and free running, what they are are, are all-around athletes. They are using every part of the body, the core, their upper body, their agility, their quickness, their reflexes. And again, I think they are approaching something that is much wiser than the rest of us who are just concerned about doing the same thing over and over again. Hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's that well-rounded, you know, sort of functional fitness that's really important then, isn't it? It's getting a little bit of everything rather than just overdoing one particular facet. True. I mean, I was on a trampoline with my kids, and uh, my kids were trying to get me to do a flip, and I just couldn't make myself do it, you know? And <laughs> I'm sure physically I was capable. It's just, a, it's just a movement I haven't practiced in 40 years. Yeah. Well, Chris, I'm th- you know, this has been insightful, and, and definitely I think it's going to encourage a lot of people to get out there and give it a go and give it a try. Um, is there any, la- you know, a bit of advice that you would like to give to our listeners to say, you know, what what would you say to our listeners to say who have never tried running or even tried barefoot running? Um, what would you say to them? Don't listen to any runners. <laughs> shut all, seriously, shut them all out because I tell you, one of the big problems anytime you tell people that you're running, the first question they're going to say is, have you run a marathon? How fast can you run a marathon? It's all, it's all about that performance aspect. Shove all that stuff down the bin. Focus on the play aspect. Focus First, number one, on, on pleasure. If you enjoy it, you'll want to do it more and, and keep your eye on the pleasure, not on the speed. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. And I reckon that's one of the things, having read your book, Chris, is one of the changes I made was going from someone who was kind of pounding the pavement to actually getting out into the beautiful trails we've got, getting out to the outdoors, you know, running along, seeing over here koalas and, you know, and it's just a completely different experience. It's just going out there and enjoying running around in the outdoors. It's the same thing you did when you were seven years old. You had recess, right? <laughs> you, know, uh, it, you got to play, and, and you always looked forward to recess. So if you call it a workout, if it's work, at some point you're going to drop it. But if it's play and it's fun, you're going to want to keep them back out there. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's a, if you for anybody who wants to check out Chris, it's uh, www.chrismcdougal.com. Um, he's the author of the national best-selling book called "Born to Run: A Hidden Tribe, Super Athletes in the Greatest Race the World Has Never Seen." So it's a great book. It's uh, definitely one of the top books on the Wallace Guys list. So thank you very much for your time, Chris. And uh, you know, we we definitely look forward to uh, hearing from our listeners to you know giving uh, barefoot running a try or even just getting out there and, and running and enjoying it yeah thank you so much guys I, w- I would do this every day if you wanted to thanks, <laughs> <laughs> thanks Chris good on you mate alright well that's a great another great episode filled with so much insights and so much information so it's another one that you would definitely want to listen to again and again as always join us each week on the wellnessguys.com leave your comments below this episode and tell us what you think um, make sure you talk to us on Facebook like us on Facebook tell us what you think about this episode follow us on Twitter sign up for e- notice of each episode and make sure you download us and uh, on iTunes so until next week begin creating wellness into your lives lead by example and let's change the world's health together join us join us next week on the wellness guy show